I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. It's great to be with you again and a big thank you to everyone who's been sharing the show with their friends and colleagues. The show is growing at a great rate and we're being able to help more and more people. So yeah, thanks so much for your follows and your subscribes and all the sharing. We really, really do appreciate it. Now today I'm talking to Julia Phelan and Julia is the co-founder of 211. She has a PhD in education from UCLA and spent much of her career as a research and learning scientist at UCLA as well as a consulting and advising for school districts, philanthropic organisations, academic publishing, edtech, corporate training and government agencies. She co-founded 211 to utilise knowledge of how learning works to shape the design and development of meaningful and engaging learning experiences for learners of all ages. Now, Julie's going to take us into exactly how this organisation works and, and what she's doing to, to really be there to support you in so many different ways. So this is a, a really insightful and fascinating conversation about learning generally and how it's helping everyone through education. So my conversation with Julia Phelan from 211. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Education on Fire podcast. It's always great to speak to so many different people and we speak to people around the world. And I love the fact that I can speak to somebody who's local and far away at the same time. So, so first of all, let's just start you off with that. You know, where did you start your life and your your world, as it were? And where, where do you live now? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Mark, for having me. So my my journey, I think, has been quite uh quite meandering. My, I, I was born in California, but never lived here. So my parents, both English, my dad was working in California. So I was born there and then they moved back to England. I grew up in England in the Worcestershire area. And then because I had dual citizenship, then I ended up coming back to America, not really for any particular reason, but really just because I could. <laughs> and it seemed like a good idea at the time. So I had deferred my uh, university place uh, for a year and I came to California. And then as uh, often happens, one thing leads to another and I end up staying here to go to university and go to graduate school and then you get married, etc. So I am still living here in California, but now I live in Southern California in Malibu, California. And so that's my uh, that, that's where I am today, but uh, uh, have gone through a few other places on the way. And I can kind of relate to the heat because for the like, say for the first time in many years we've had a, a almost comparable kind of temperatures going on here in the UK is is in California. And I think the last time I felt any heat like we did for just two or three days here was when I was in LA the last time, and it was that kind of walking out the door and being hit by that heat, which is just something you don't ever experience here. I know. Well, we were back in England in June uh, for the first time in a few years because of the pandemic and everything, and. It was unbelievable in June how hot it was. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it really is. So 
you sort of spoke about your journey in terms of sort of physically where you were moving around. Where did the where did the passion for science come from? Where did that idea of what you wanted to study in 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 you know taking that leap to like say to stay in the states and 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 do college and university in that particular way? You know, I think Mark that that uh, I was always quite. Uh, I was, I was one of those sorts of people who didn't always have a, a plan, you know, and I was always just sort of kind of seeing what happened and which sounds, I don't know, a bit scatterbrained sometimes, but I think it was just the way that things worked for me. So I ended up, you know, I, I had applied to go to university in England, deferred that, moved to California, and then, you know, I stayed there for a couple of years doing various things, just, you know, working in restaurants and those types of things. And finally, my parents said, okay, you know, if you're staying there, you have to do something. And even though you know, we speak the same language, the, this, the whole educational system is, is very different and I didn't really know how to jump in. So I just went to a community college up in Northern California, which is where I was living at the time. And, and I literally you know, just sort of walked in there and said, okay, like, how does this work? You know, and and <clears throat> immediately they were like, oh, do you have a transcript? Do you have all these things that I didn't have, and do you have a diploma? I'm like, no. And anyway, so I sort of figured it out, but so I ended up going to that community college for, I think it was about a year and a half, really just to get used to the system and figure out, you know, what, you know, what, what was it all about? What, what was I interested in doing? What was I gonna do in the future? And I ended up then moving from there, I went to UCLA and I was actually a psychology um, undergrad. And then while at the tail end of my, uh, of my, my undergraduate degree, that was when, so I work in education, um, but learning science really now, but that was my, the end of the, of my undergraduate career was where I really started to get interested in, in learning and education. And that's what led me to do my PhD in education again at UCLA. And while I was there, I worked at a research center on the campus and ended up working there once I had finished my, my PhD at UCLA and worked there for many years. But it was really that while I was a graduate student, I had almost like a, I don't know if it was like three different personas going because I was working as a, as a teaching assistant for a research methods course in psychology. And I was doing my graduate program. And then also at the same time, I was really interested in science and I thought, well, you know, why don't I take some science courses just sort of on the side, which seems a bit crazy. So I ended up doing basically a full uh, pre-med undergraduate degree at UCLA while I was in graduate school, just getting this huge breadth of experience in, in you know, physics and chemistry and biology and physiology and, and all sorts of different areas. So uh, yeah, I was having this, I was leading like a triple life at the time. um and from from all that experience in terms of you know getting to the point of sort of setting up 211 and and that kind of thing where does the sort of the psychology and the science and and the human behavior and sort of the naturalness of everything and 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 it all sort of sort of where does that melting pot sort of come in to sort of 
start you off in terms of all the support that you're doing for everybody and or is it kind of those different sort of um compartments which sort of help you sort of share that whole i don't think so i think because i think in any context in any educational context there's learning is happening regardless you know you could be teaching music like we were talking about earlier or you could be teaching someone how to drive or you could be you know teaching someone or you could be learning learning the ropes at at a new job, for example. And in all of those situations, you're having to learn new stuff and you're having to pay attention to you know, new things around you and attach those things to prior knowledge that you already have. And so I think for me, it's when I think about my work, it's really about how can we you know, apply all of the stuff that we know about how people learn and not just how we wish it happened, but how it really happens and then help people to think about how does that apply to them in their particular context and how do they need to change it as the learning journey progresses. So you could imagine if you're teaching someone music, there are certain things that you'll teach them when they're a brand new novice. And then as they develop expertise, perhaps you phase some of those things away or you remove some of those scaffolds and supports and now you can shift the way you're teaching them in a, a little bit but that doesn't mean that you're not still applying these principles. You're just you know, shifting and adapting to that context. And so that's what I think about a lot is how can we look at a context, no matter what it is, and figure out how can we make the most effective and efficient learning experience or learning environment to suit that. And that's what I help people think through now. I really like that idea of everything changing because you're right there's, there's sort of big sort of milestones of kind of like say the scaffolding can go here you're you're now not five anymore you're 10 or 15 and so there's sort of different different approaches and different situations there but um the nuance of kind of because you now have more information and more skill and more knowledge in what you're doing there's there's a shift in emphasis there's a shift in understanding and, and it's it's like I say it's very nuanced and, and almost sort of a imperceptible yeah. in some ways in terms of, of what that new vision looks like even though like I say you're still on that same journey yeah and a lot of times people will say to me oh what's the best way to do x you know what's the best way to teach someone this or what's the best way to do something and and it sounds like a cop-out sometimes but really the the answer is it depends right so for for you, you know, the best way for you to teach someone how to play the guitar is going to be really dependent on, well, do they know how to read music? Do they, have they ever played any other instruments? Have they ever picked up the guitar, you know, maybe when they were a kid and now they're older? But all sorts of things are going to influence that. Or are they taking guitar lessons because their mum and dad told them to? Or are they really intrinsically motivated to do it? You know, all of these things can impact how we approach you know, learning situations. And so as an educator, you really need to be thinking about and also you know, modifying what you're doing in response to that. So a lot of, uh, a lot of this type of work is thinking about what are the, you know, what's this person bringing to this learning experience or this learning environment? What do I need to know about that? And how do I need to modify or shift what I'm doing to try and you know, leverage things in the most effective way? And the other thing that I mean, this, this issue is quite slippery because it might be that one day you have a, a motivational block that is, oh, I don't think that I don't think Julia likes me or something and or my teacher likes me. And so I'm going to, you know, I, I just don't feel like I'm welcome in this environment. 
that could change. You know, your teacher could do something to help you see that, oh, actually they do like you and they do feel like you belong there. But now waiting in the wings might be another issue that's going to impede your learning uh, in the same way. And so it's, I think, just being very aware that there are, you could look at two students, let's say in a classroom, they could both have the same blank look on their face or the same bored look in their eyes, but they may be seeing, they may be feeling that way for completely different reasons. You know, one person might be thinking, oh, my parents are getting divorced and I'm really worried, where are we gonna live and so on and so forth. And another student might be thinking, oh, I hate maths, you know, I, I, my teachers have always told me I'm no good at it, when am I ever gonna use this, so on and so forth. But as an educator, you don't necessarily know that just by looking at them. So it's, again, trying to peel back some of those those layers to look inside and figure out how can you how can you meet that person where they are and really you know ex move their learning forward yeah i love that meeting 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 anybody where they are i think is so important and and like you're saying and that's different every day often because of like you say what's happened yesterday or this morning and also like you say it's only when you get to have that sort of one-on-one -on -one contact sometimes where you can then sort of think ah oh, I can now see that there's 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 an ongoing confidence thing here. So while this is all brilliant and hunky dory in lessons, the, the 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 mere mention in my scenario of kind of there's an informal concert coming up in a month. Should we think about a piece we're going to play? And then all of a sudden you see the shutters come down and you think that's not about your ability to play because you're doing brilliantly and you're doing all the right things and you're practicing hard. But suddenly outside of the the, the study in the practice room, you feel like it's a whole different ball game. Right. Right, exactly. So it's just, yeah, trying to understand and interpret some of those things and all of the, of the different things that can impact that. Yeah. So in terms of, of your work, how does it, literally, how does it work? How do people come to you? What are their kind of problems? What is it that you're solving? How, how, are you, how does that sort of conversation start, I guess, and, and, and go forward from there? You know, sometimes people come to me and they say, oh my goodness, I had this idea that I wanted to create a course. You know, I do, let's say I do therapy with families and I decided I want to create a course around that um, so I could scale this up or I could I could get more people to, to um, I could have influence on more people other than people who could just afford to come to me for one-on-one -on -one therapy. So, so that could be a, a need that somebody has. And then they quickly realize, oh, I just don't have the first idea about how I would actually do that. You know, how would I, I've got all this stuff in my head, I've got all this experience and expertise, but that doesn't really mean that that person necessarily knows how to convey that to somebody else in a, in a, in a teaching and learning environment. So that's, that's one thing that, um, that happens quite frequently is people say, you know, can you help me think through how I can create a different version perhaps you know so I, I do something in one modality and i'd like to do it in another modality during the pandemic for example there were so many people as you know who had to shift from doing things in person to doing things virtually and that back to what we were talking about earlier that context is a big shift for people so when you're used to seeing your students in in person and, and noticing oh yeah so and so is looking like they're falling asleep and so and so is nodding and looking like they're understanding some of that is then lost in that other environment so what are some things that you can do or you should do to try and you know make up for that or fill in those gaps and so those are things that you know one of the back to the one of your original questions of you know how did i really get get into this work is 
I'd like to um, elevate the practice and the art of teaching and learning to something that is as regarded and respected as subject matter expertise. And I think that as a society, we don't, you know, we tend to think, oh, so-and-so is an expert, you know, chemist or physicist or mathematician or biologist or musician. Therefore, they ought to be an expert teacher of that to somebody else who doesn't know that. And I think we all know, we all have our own experiences with that, that that just isn't true. But even understanding that that isn't true, I don't think is quite enough. What we have to really step back and think about is, okay, if, if we want people to be good teachers, then we need to be teaching people how to be good teachers and really, uh, you know, elevating that to to the level that we sh that, it, that it should have. And similarly with students, your know, students don't tend to receive much instruction or help or guidance in how they should approach their own studies. You know, how should they revise for exams? What are the best things that they can do? And we, I think, do students a big disservice when we don't help support them in that because there's a huge body of research that that we know we know how to do those things and we know what's effective and the problem is that the things that are effective for for students are the things that feel more difficult and so you know if if you let students to their own devices they're not going to gravitate to things that feel harder to do but so, so it's just an example of something where we can help people to see here are some effective ways and similarly with teaching um, and other, other work that I do involves helping to build internal capacity, let's say within an organization who works in the educational field in some way, but to help build foundational knowledge of learning science principles that might be applicable to people's day-to-day -day work, no matter what you know, department they're in, because there's always some... Uh, level of understanding that's going to be useful as they're making decisions or thinking about new product features or any th those types of things. And how do you find, uh, whether it's the reaction or, or or in terms of how people show up, I, I always find it's interesting when it's somebody who's come to you directly as opposed to maybe someone who's come as part of a department or a, a school or, or an organisation who's been asked to be part of, of something. Um, that sort of sense of I do what I do really well, or I'm really comfortable, I'm in my comfort zone, it's all working brilliantly. And then you sort of open up this world of possibilities. And I suppose everybody's different. So some people will grab it, some people will feel insecure. But sort of what are those sort of experiences that you find that that people might identify with or, or can certainly help them with? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think for some people, they've never thought about this, this type of thing, you know, they've never thought like, oh, you know, should I be thinking a little bit more about really how people learn and how that works and, and what what different things can get in the way of student motivation? Or, how, or should I really be paying attention to helping students to see in my you know, the organization of my instructional materials, for example, where they should be looking? And, and I think there's a lot of times where in conversations with me, people will say, oh yeah, I'd never really thought about that before. I hadn't really thought explicitly about that. And I think a big one there tends to be thinking about goals and outcomes that sometimes I'll say to people, oh, well, you, you designed this course or this program. Did you get what you wanted to get from it? And 
more often than I think you would imagine, people will say, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, I had this idea and I went and ran with it, but I didn't necessarily think, oh, who's the right audience for this? Or what do I really hope to get from it? You, you know, so I think that that's one of the, one of the things that perhaps has been a surprise to me over many years is how frequently that comes up as a, oh, hadn't really thought about that before. You know, I hadn't really thought, you know, where do I want to go? Let's articulate that really clearly and then we can figure out how to get there. Sometimes it's easy to get sort of stuck into something new and shiny that's the way you're going to get somewhere, but you haven't quite decided, you know, where you're going to go. Um, and I think that with with teachers, I mean, I do a lot of work with teachers in, in big school districts. And so I think when you when you work with teachers, you have to remember and appreciate and let them know that, that they have expertise and experience in the classroom. And perhaps I'm bringing a different perspective, but that doesn't negate the expertise and experience that they already have that is extremely, extremely valuable. So I think it's it's creating a, a collaborative type of environment and, and one where there's there's mutual respect right on, on both sides can be a much more positive and productive type of experience. Because, you know, at the end of the day, people are often or we hope ready to learn and be receptive to things if it's if it's approached in the right way i think that's really true and and i certainly know from when i've been into schools and done workshops and then the, the teachers have been involved and the idea that you know that you're sort of showing them the skills that they can then use and adapt and do it themselves and it's the starting point i think for many of the breakthroughs was that sense of you're already a brilliant teacher you know these kids you know exactly what's happening all i'm doing is showing you the sort of the musical skill base and i know that feels a little bit out of your comfort zone and, and i completely understand that but it's not quite as creative and in inverted commas it's not just coming out of anywhere i use the same the same warm-ups the same setup for for each situation which i adapt of course but that, that that kind of teaching part of it you already knew you i'm just sort of giving you a little bit more information and that kind of gives you then like you say that that sense of oh right yeah you know i'm a lot further down this path than i thought i i could be mm -hmm. and sometimes there are i mean i find with teachers that that they have really great instincts and they might be thinking about i was talking to a teacher recently in new zealand who um was asking me all about time of day to teach things and you know is there a good time of day to teach certain subjects well again it's one of those sort of you know it depends type questions but you know there are certain general things that you can think about of you know when a, when especially a young student uh is it's in the morning they're they're a little bit fresher and they've had their breakfast hopefully and and they're ready for the day and so those time periods are likely to be better suited to something that perhaps is a little bit more complex or difficult for that particular student rather than having, let's say, PE or something like that first thing in the morning. But I think that sometimes teachers have instincts that, yeah, I, I would think that that might be the case, but then you can help them to see what's some of the evidence for some of those practices and also how might they apply some of those principles in other ways. And this particular teacher was also talking about how you know we can 
weekend in our classroom design get really busy and have tons of things, particularly when we're talking about younger students and have just a bazillion things in our, in our classrooms and on the walls and you know, it looks pretty and lovely. But for some students, that's just a real distraction. And you know, one thing we know about learning is there's only so much space in our short-term memory for us to take in new stuff. And if, if, I, if all the new stuff I'm taking in is all my dis these distractions around me, then I'm not in a good place to learn something new. And so you know, there are, if you just even take that basic principle, then there are certain things you can do in, let's say, the design of a classroom to try and reduce that extraneous cognitive load that can be imposed on some students and you know, simplify things a little bit. And I've certainly heard that from other teachers um, you know, across the country who have begun to streamline or strip down their classroom design a little bit to be a little bit more less distracting. And I, I guess in the same kind of vein, there's often, like I say, it's almost that shiny object syndrome, isn't there? Like you say, you go and have a conversation with somebody or they, they come and speak to you and there's just the brilliant ideas and they're like, oh, but I'm kind of set. <laughs> um, and it's that kind of, you don't have to change everything. You don't need, you know, you take, you take all these things, you adapt what you need to do. And also it's a journey that we're all on as well. So you can, you can morph and you can, you can say, I can see how that's going to work, but it's not going to be today. It might be next month or next semester or, or whatever it, or whatever it happens to be. And I think stepping onto that sort of conveyor belt of learning where you're moving you're you're learning you're heading in a, in the right direction and i think that sort of almost modeling then helps the people that you're you're teaching as well because you, it's not that kind of oh i've been here and done this now I've, I've i've got this sorted that's never the case so when you kind of feel happy and free that you can morph through and you can add things and take things out and that didn't work we've tried this we've experimented then, then there's kind of a different atmosphere in everything that you're trying to do. And I think that kind of takes the pressure off in some ways. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and being flexible and, and receptive to some of those things is important, but also being patient. You know, we see a lot of initiative initiatives in schools where, you know, something new comes along, maybe there's an administration change, and then you know, the next year there's another administration change and now that thing's out and the new thing is in. And sometimes, you know, we need to give uh, educational initiatives, particularly ones that are grounded in, in good theory, a little bit of time to, to, you know, take hold and gain some traction. So I think there's also, it's also important to be patient with some of these things because not only do you end up, you know, not potentially getting the benefit for some, from something that you might have, but it also really can fatigue educators because it's like, oh, okay, next thing is the new superintendent or the new, you know, head teacher at this school and we had a new thing coming. And so rather than focusing so much on specific things and, and interventions and innovations, I think if we step up to that more 30,000 foot view and think, okay, we know how students learn let's choose strategies and techniques that are connected to that. How can we apply those in different contexts and environments? And let's keep that at the forefront of our mind because oftentimes we can think, oh, everyone's teaching now with videos or something, so maybe I should do videos. And, and then you start to get that square peg in a round hole situation where maybe some things that you want to teach your students are best done the old-fashioned way and that's okay and maybe there are some things that or some contexts like we were talking about earlier that you want to try and um, consider 
that might be like, oh, okay, if I've got now my students all across the country or, or I'm trying to get to students in other, other countries, now maybe me creating some videos might be a good idea. But I, again, I need to think about what is it that I'm doing and how is it aligned to you know, what we know about how people learn and to never forget that because it's very easy to get swept up into the latest trend that may or may not be effective. And sometimes, you know, basic, th basic things are effective too. Absolutely. And I guess that boils down to leadership as well, doesn't it? Because you can see that kind of aerial view of kind of, look, this is what we're trying to do. You know, this is the journey that we're on. And and everyone, I, I can understand that. I'm really going to do that. And then the rest of it, like I say, filters in as it as it comes through as well. And I, and I really sort of like that sort of element of of how it works. And and again, it's that it's that sort of modeling thing, isn't it? Which just just enable and enables it to be an easy step. Even though, like I say, once you get into the the nitty gritty of it, that's going to take a little while to work out until you you make it work in the best way that you can. So. I'm interested always when people are involved in education, if there's an education experience or a teacher which had a big impact and one why that was, but also has that still had an influence sort of sort of many years down the line in terms of sort of how you show up in the sort of work that you do? I think so, yeah. And I, and I was thinking about this, that when I was in, when I was in graduate school, sorry, sorry, when I was in undergrad, my undergraduate um, degree, one of the last classes that I took was, uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was an education-based course with a, a professor at UCLA called Jim Stigler, who I later became to know and worked with his wife, but at the time I didn't know him. And he had written a book called The Learning Gap, and it was focused on research that he had done with others comparing school performance in the United States with, um, you know, elementary education practices in Asia, and I think it was specifically Japan and China. And what they found were these really big differences in, it wasn't really about the curriculum so much, but it was big differences in the teaching methods and practices, and that their solution, as, as they conceived of it after the, these years of research that was, and this is sort of the form, the foundation of this course I was taking, was that Elevating teaching to an art form was a necessary step in addressing these differences in outcomes. And that really stuck with me, obviously, as I think I mentioned that earlier, but I think that was something that led me then to pursue my graduate studies in education. But that that class I felt like was a, a, a pivotal moment where I really could see the, you know, that the interesting part about them looking at these differences that people might say oh yeah well why are there differences in in student outcomes in these different countries let's dig into that a little bit more and i was already interested in research methods anyway but then them really comparing all the different curricula and things and and their ultimate finding of yeah you know in in some of these other countries teaching is just elevated to a higher level and is more respected profession and I think that that really formed one of my big life goals that I would like teaching and learning to be elevated to that art form. So, so I think that's the educational experience that really sticks with me. I love that. And I hadn't thought of that before in terms of, you know, changing the whole um, vision, the, the perception of what teaching is, has is completely outside of what the curriculum is or, or what, what any person is saying at any given time, just by 
the way it is as part of society and that sort of perception of of what it is that we're doing and that has to have an impact doesn't it yeah yeah what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given and and what was sort of that impact in in terms of who gave it to you but that may also indeed be a piece of advice you give your younger self now that sort of junior looking looking back on someone with with a bit more experience and I do often caveat this with the fact that I as you sort of alluded to before younger especially young people or teenagers don't necessarily take on the great advice that they've been given or understand no not always I think it relates to something I was just saying about the educational experience that I have, but my dad is an astrophysicist and someone who you know, always had a knack for being able to fix things, you know, could take apart the dishwasher and lay it on the kitchen floor and, and figure out how to fix it, but could also create beautiful, you know, wooden puzzles and, you know, those sort of really intricate little, like, uh, almost like mind-bending puzzles. And I could never understand how someone would make something like that. And then he could also do, you know, complex solar flare research in space. But he would always say when, you know, confronted with something that was outside of his wheelhouse, he would say, well, when in doubt, consult an expert. And I think that is advice that I have really taken to heart. And thinking about, you know, not assuming that, that I know how to do things that I haven't been taught or that I don't have experience in, and having that humility, I think, to recognize your own limitations and be open to learning and not being afraid to, you know, be vulnerable about, you know, things that you don't know. And I think that it it really speaks to someone who, in his case, you know, very accomplished and, and expert in so many areas, but, but understanding that, okay, I don't have to be expert in everything. And when I'm not, I can go and find someone who is. And I think that's very, very good advice because I think sometimes when we're in new situations or we're confronted with you know, new problems or new tasks, we, we can forget that there's this whole world of people who have been thinking about these things for years and this huge value in recognizing that and learning from it, right? That why would you know how to do everything immediately? And it's about, I think, respecting expertise and experience and figuring out how you can leverage that in areas that you don't have it in. So I think that's that's probably the advice that I really think about a lot. Yeah, I, I love that. And it's something that something that I grapple with, I guess, is one way of doing it, because my, my dad is someone who can turn his hand to anything. Um, and I certainly can't. <laughs> and but 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 I think I think, like you said, we're, we're, we're all a product of our environment, whether it's, you know, family or, or situational community. Um, and I think taking what you just said, and, and thinking about it in the round, it's that kind of, you know, I don't know how to do this particular thing. So finding an expert means that I can get it done in a way that I know is going to be correct, proper, safe, whatever the situation has to be. But then you also have that decision to make of kind of, well, that's brilliant because they've done it. I don't need to get involved in it and it's it's complete. Or I can think, do you know what? There's something there that's never come across my my understanding before and I might take a step into that and I could learn more about it or, or whatever that happens to be. But I think, like I say, the idea of that humility and that sense of, I just don't know. It's not something I've come across, and and that's okay. Rather than like say, I should know everything in the world, <laughs> and that's a dangerous place to go. For sure, and I also think that when we think about students, looking at this from the other perspective, that we, it's very easy for us to you know, watch a video, let's say on YouTube, and and think, oh, 
like so I mentioned I was learning how to play guitar I can watch someone playing the guitar and, and it looks looks relatively simple and straightforward and then I start trying to do it and I can't even keep my hands on the on the, the, the frets for more than two seconds because it starts to hurt and and you know just manipulating your fingers in all these different ways and that's just a baby step of that so I think that it's when we when we help people to understand, and one of my mantras, Mark, is learning is hard, but hard is learning. So when so learning is hard, that doesn't mean it's not useful or not valuable, or you shouldn't go into it. And when something does feel hard for you, that is when you are learning it. And I think that when we can help people to understand that, it helps us to, to not think, oh yes, I could just watch this you know, five minute video on how to you know, decorate a cake beautifully or something and then I'll just be able to do it because the person who's doing that has you know, thousands of hours of experience at doing that. And yes, they make it look easy, but it isn't as easy. And I think developing an understanding and respect of that is important because A, it helps people to see where they are on that journey and not to give up, you know, and to persevere and to realize, okay, this is going to take some time, but I think it's going to be worth it in the end because I one day, hopefully, could be as good as this person. And and also just to 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 build some of that resiliency and some of that build that muscle of, you know, yeah, nothing happens overnight. You know, not, not, nobody becomes expert in anything overnight. And so I think helping people to see that is really important. I love that. And I love the fact that you mentioned resilience there, because um, the acronym FIRE is important to us here at Education on Fire. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience and empowerment. And um, I'm, I'm curious always, you know, what's the, the one thing that springs to mind there or, or do you want to expand on, like you say, where that resilience may come from? Yeah, and I think when I think about that, I think about the importance of sharing with people struggles and missteps and learning from them so we all have a somewhat sanitized view and we think about social media as the obvious example here that we can see someone and think oh mark has it all together he looks fantastic he's doing all these great things and not really know what's happening under the surface and i think it can make people feel a little bit alone in their own struggles or uncertainties or your know, feelings of failure or whatever it might be. And I think when you can share with people your own feelings of uncertainty your own or your own missteps and also how you learned from them and, and hopefully overcame them, it can be really empowering for people. And my husband is an educator at UCLA and he's a great teacher, he's a great writer, but his path to success was not always smooth. And one of the things that I love about his teaching style and teaching practice is that he talks a lot with his students about things that he did specific things you have bad scores that he got bad grades that he got the fact that he was subject to dismissal at ucla at some point in his career and but then also how he turned things around and he gets so many comments and so much feedback from his students over i mean over many 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 years that he's been teaching where they say you know i'm so happy that you shared that that your 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 journey with me because i've been feeling myself like i'm so alone no one understands what i'm going through i'm you know my grades are terrible or you know i'm just not doing well here and and it just feels insurmountable to me and hearing from someone who had similar struggles and was able to learn from them 
and was able to come out the other side is really, really, really beneficial. And I think it doesn't happen enough that people share those things because we're all, I think, ready to share the, the perfect, you know, sort of the, the, the end chapter of our, of our lives without talking about all the stuff that led to it. And I think when we do that, we do a disservice to people because it makes it, again, back to this idea of making things look easy, it can make it look and feel like, oh yeah, it was easy for him, he did that, but no, it wasn't. Yeah, and so I think by sharing specific examples of things can help people see that, you know, resilience is a is something that you can develop. It's malleable. It's and it's something that you can, you know, if if you look at your uh, missteps or struggles or failures, you can learn from them and you can change your trajectory moving forward. It doesn't have to be an end game or okay, that's it. I can't be this. I failed this course. And I think the more we can give examples to people of that specific examples of of mistakes and how you came out the other side and learned from them is really really valuable i love that and i think i think that like say the more people that do it the more especially students and, and people that you're around will start to realize that everyone's got these stories you know nobody's literally was born and then gets to their deathbed and goes well that was easy i don't know why yeah, <laughs> why no problem. yeah. yeah job, job done you know it's the fact that and also the fact that everyone is different you know because oh this i failed my a levels or i didn't get into grad school or i didn't do this or like say i had the perfect job and then i got fired or you know whatever it is whatever part of your life it is or it might be a personal thing rather than a, even a learning or a professional thing but when you realize that you know you've got a hundred people in front of you and they've all got a story all slightly different. And then you can start to take enough that I love that sort of um, 30,000 feet kind of analogy again of kind of my journey is different to all of these, but there are those key threads, which means that I can identify what that is within me and then take that journey. I think that's such a valuable lesson. Yeah. And I think it helps you to see that you can bounce back or come back or that, that if there's something that, before it happened, you think, okay, that, well, that was the worst possible thing that could have happened to me. Sometimes what subsequently happens actually ends up being better for some reason, or you learned this lesson and you went a different direction and actually had a positive outcome. And so I think it's, it's helping people see, A, how you can bounce back from that, and then you know, think about how you cope with it, and it's not something that has to be you know, the, the be all and end all, I think is, is a key thing to think about yeah yeah i love it well julia thank you so much for sharing all that wisdom and insight it's um it's fascinating and i love sort of you know hearing and 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 sort of seeing that kind of you know the the voice the personality the 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 real kind of insights of of what people would normally just see either like say as a website or a, or a quote or something like that so so just leave us with where people can find out more and how they can interact again Absolutely. So um, they can look up 211solutions.com. So it's T-O and then 11 solutions. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So um, definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn just with my name, Julia Phelan. And yeah, I would love to, I would love to hear from anyone who is interested in chatting about learning. Fantastic. And we'll have those links on the show notes as well. So thank you so much. Um, and as I said, I'm, I've enjoyed the heat of, of California here <laughs> in Britain for a few days. And, and But I, I think these conversations in terms of, of how we're all connected and how we have things to share across the board in that learning environment is, is such a great thing to have, have in common. So thank you so much for sharing and being here today. Thank you so much, Mark. It was my pleasure. Thanks.
Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.